Art may have a purpose, but its purpose is undefined, and architecture or design often has a definitive prescribed purpose. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Earlier this month, a strange new show opened at New York's Gallery Periton. Monochrome statues that look like they've been unearthed from classical antiquity seem to have aged far longer than that, for eons, in fact, disintegrating in places and sprouting crystals in others. Side by side with these statues are sculptures of, wait, are those Pokemon? Yes, they are. And they're also ravaged by time. You may have guessed the artist behind all of this by now. Daniel Arsham, a multifaceted phenom who is as well known in the fashion community as in the art community, thanks to his countless collaborations with brands like Dior and Adidas. Arsham runs less an art studio than a rhizomatic creative empire that encompasses art, design, and architecture, and surreally enough, the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team, of which he is the newly installed creative director. There's been a lot of talk about how the pandemic has accelerated everything, but in Daniel's case, it has both accelerated his work and slowed him down, so much so that he has returned to making paintings for the first time since he was in art school. To discuss his wide-ranging creative project and how the COVID era has impacted it, I'm very happy to have Daniel Arsham on the show today. So thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Daniel. My pleasure. The year is off to a pretty harrowing start, and I was wondering, where are you right now, and how are you feeling about 2021? I'm in New York, in my studio, looking out over the East River. You know, we're in Queens, so I can see Manhattan across the river. Certainly living in interesting times, starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, as everyone else is here, kind of living in this alternate reality that we've all been experiencing for the last year. You have an unusually compelling origin story. You were born in Cleveland, Ohio, which is a relevant detail that we're going to return to later on. But you soon moved to Miami, where something very dramatic happened to you when you were 12 years old. What happened? So there was a hurricane in Miami on August 24th, 1992, which may have been like the most destructive, at least powerful hurricane that had hit in a number of years in Florida. And the house that I was in was completely destroyed while we were in it which certainly was probably a traumatic experience as a 12-year-old. I don't particularly remember it being catastrophically traumatic to me in the moment. It was more the memory of the wind and the rain and the feeling of this sort of permanent element of childhood just being completely destroyed, as well as the sort of bizarre magic of living with no power, almost in a pre civilization state cooking over fire in the backyard of a suburban house that's been destroyed kind of vibe for over a month. It was a certainly informative experience in many ways. You were particularly interested in the impact that the hurricane had on the architecture of your house. I think as just a child, you know, I was very interested in architecture at that point, but I didn't have a clear understanding of how it was constructed and particularly what was inside of it. So as the storm was pulling apart the house, when we emerged from hiding in this closet, 
the walls were torn apart. I remember there was this like pink insulation foam that had been blown around by the wind and sort of coated everything. And seeing the inside of the roof beams and the drywall that had been torn off and all of the structural members inside the walls. So to see the destruction of that and then over the next year, the house was rebuilt and it was built back exactly the way that it was before. So it was this bizarre sort of idea of this thing being torn apart and destroyed and then reassembled back into its original state. Wow. So what is the kind of the twisty story about what put you on the path to becoming a fine artist? Well, I studied architecture in high school. I went to a specialized high school called Dash Design and Architecture Senior High School in Miami and certainly thought that architecture was something that I would pursue in college, but it was a little bit too much of a rigid platform and I ended up failing drafting courses. So I went on to study visual art at Cooper Union, but that school also has a very strong architecture program. And I was able to take a few classes within the architecture school, as well as having advisors from that department. My senior thesis advisor was Anthony Vidler, a famous architectural critic and writer. That aspect of my education certainly influenced the art side heavily. It's remarkable for a recent graduate to have the kind of trajectory that you had after Cooper Union. You pretty much got your career on track in a few short years. What did you do immediately after you graduated? This was right around the time that Art Basel was starting in Miami. And so immediately after school, I moved back to Miami and with a group of friends rented a house, which was kind of a dilapidated house close to Wynwood, uh, which is the area where all of these studios and galleries were opening. And we started an exhibition space there. So imagine a house with no furniture in it, clean white walls and exhibited our work and our friends worked. The space was called The House and met a lot of different people in more traditional art world through that. Bonnie Clearwater, who was the director of the Museum of Contemporary Art there. I met Emmanuel Periton, who later became my dealer and has been representing me since 2005. And that was really our way of not kind of waiting around for a gallery or a dealer to sort of approach us. It was about creating our own exhibition space and finding that as a vehicle to show work. Pretty quickly after that, you got offered a show at MoCA based on the work that you did in the house. You were then hired by the legendary choreographer Merce Cunningham in 2004 to do his stage design. And in 2005, you were hired by Hedy Slimane, the famous fashion designer, to create fitting rooms for a store he was opening in L.A. And then that same year, you got your first solo show with Emmanuel Peritan, who is your dealer to this day. And that's a lot of really kind of disparate, interlocking things to happen to a young artist in such quick succession. What do you think it is that made it possible for your career to kind of set off so quickly? I mean, I will say it didn't feel quick, you know, <laughs> as I was living through it. A lot of it was interest in areas outside of the art world. You know, my interest in dance and working with Merce Cunningham, the connection with Eddie Slimane came about after my first exhibition with Emmanuel in Paris. Eddie saw that exhibition and actually acquired a couple works from that show and then got in touch to see if I'd be interested to 
create something further with him integrated. And that was the first sort of foray into fashion universe for me. And around 2007 is when Snarkitecture was born. Can you describe quickly what is Snarkitecture and how did that come into being? Snarkitecture is a design practice based here in New York that I founded with Alex Mustinen, who studied at the architecture school at Cooper, which is where I met him. And the original idea for Snarkitecture actually came about through the collaboration that I did with Eddie Sliman at Dior in Los Angeles. And part of the challenge with that project was that although it employed sculptural techniques that I had used in the past in my work and had exhibited in museums and galleries, it was in a public space that required things like building code and needed to be constructed in a different way. And being that I didn't have that experience, I actually hired Alex initially to help me realize that project. And following that, we discussed the potential for areas of collaboration that were maybe a little bit closer to architecture than they were to art. Art may have a purpose, but its purpose is undefined. And architecture or design often has a definitive prescribed purpose. You know, a chair tells you what to do with it. And so architecture was really founded to explore in that area. The practice continues to this day. I would say in the beginning, it was a little more directly linked with my artistic body of work, but it's really found its own voice now. So to get into your artistic body of work, around the same time that Snarkitecture is taking off, you began working in 2013 on the beginnings of a new body of work called Future Relic. And this has become your trademark series to date, and it consists of all these everyday objects, from cameras to basketballs to pop culture icons, as if they were been petrified over the eons, spouting quartz crystals and showing signs of decay and erosion. And it's kind of as if they've been discovered by archaeologists of some future civilization. What is the idea behind this series? So the first time they were shown was in 2013, but the origin of the idea came many years earlier after a trip I made in Easter Island, which is famous for these giant statues of heads. They're actually bodies. The bodies are mostly buried beneath the ground. Typically, when we think about archaeology and, in fact, history in general, it's taught and conveyed in a very definitive manner. So we're told a story about an era, about a sculpture, about a building, and we take that as fact, effectively. This island, the sculptures that are on it, the people, all of that history, it's one of the few, I would say, significant archaeological locations that still has heavy disagreement about what happened there, how the sculptures were made, how they were transported across the island, what happened to the people, the Rapa Nui people, as they're called. That whole story fascinated me, and particularly this idea that the sculptures on that island were created sometime between 600 and 900 AD, and all new things that are brought there. So imagine a car that's brought to the island or a computer. When they're done, they're put into a landfill on the actual island. A thousand years from now, the distance in time between those two objects is much more confused. And I started to think about, could I take contemporary objects and push them into the future through a material transformation, sort of reverse engineer archaeology, if you will. And that came about through 
a material shift, so taking a computer and reforming it in volcanic ash or crystal, materials that we associate inherently with a kind of geological time frame. And I've expanded the breadth of that work to include things beyond this current era, most recently using molds from the Louvre, referencing Greek and Roman antiquities. So it's an ongoing exploration. And it's interesting that like the acroliths in Easter Island, a lot of your work is expressed in whites and grays. And this is pretty much the truth for Future Relic and also a lot of the work that you've done with architecture. Why are whites and grays? So I think there's a number of things to it. One which wasn't necessarily intentional in the choice of it is that I'm colorblind. So the limitation of palette is inherent. The second is that often, and this is true both within my art practice as well as within architecture, the material quality of something and the limitation in materials is important to conveying an idea. So when I'm using volcanic ash, the work is black because the ash is black. You know, I'm not altering that in any way. When we're working in marble with architecture, the material is white because the marble is white. And oftentimes it's really about using a single material to articulate an idea. In some ways, I think on the design side with architecture, it's much more about creating spaces that are sort of more immediately understandable to somebody who's experiencing it. It's almost like you can see how it was made even though it may be infinitely complex, the simplicity of material makes it more approachable. I mean, it's remarkable that you've been able to build this amazing career as an artist while being colorblind. I read somewhere that in 2016 is the first time that you started working with a wider array of colors. And I think that there was some kind of technological advancement or device. How did you manage to begin working with color? There's a company called Enchroma, which developed these lenses, which could partially correct colorblindness. And there's a whole documentary on my use of that. What it's actually doing, it's not correcting it per se. It's artificially expanding the wavelengths of light in the areas that I have difficulty seeing. It's sort of tricking my eye into viewing those alternate colors. It's allowing me to see more variation in color. What it's not doing is allowing me to experience color in the way that a normal sighted person would see it. I mean, that's totally fascinating. So to go back to the work that you began with Eddie Sliman in the fashion world that has kind of now metastasized into this really very diverse and very interesting body of work that you've done with a lot of brands. It's extraordinary how You've been able to work with companies like Dior, Uniqlo, Nike, and Adidas, and Remova, and also Porsche, but then also work with Disney, and even brands like Pokemon. This is just the full spectrum of contemporary mass culture. And I wonder, how do you see your work with these brands relating to your fine art? You know, Warhol had this idea that art was sort of everyday life and the objects and the things that surrounded us were as much part of art as the things that we considered as traditional art, right, based on what an antiquity had told us. And that idea is not new, necessarily. I think that artists, even artists from antiquity, always dealt with the things that were present in their everyday experience in the past that may have been related to 
love and war and religion, and today the elements of popular culture. And I've seen the inclusion of those as useful to communicating ideas, and I've also seen them as helpful vehicles in reaching audiences that are not traditional art audiences. For most artists, the audience completes their work, right? And the expansion of audience is only beneficial. One other thing about the audience for fashion, cars, and other products like that is that not only is it much vaster than the art audience, it's also incredibly global in a way that fine art as an umbrella category is, but specific forms of art don't really translate that easily across cultures because you have these different references. They're always related to some kind of art historical language or dialogue that is very much placed in a, a particular city or scene. And how do you see this kind of global legibility of non-art objects functioning alongside the art objects? How does one way of communicating relate to the other? Especially in the earlier Future Relic works, I always tried to select objects that were almost icons of themselves. So when I was thinking about camera, it was a very particular shaped Leica or a Polaroid camera that I felt kind of everyone knew. And it, in some ways, it meant the same thing to all of us. And I think that those sort of shared things that we can agree on are useful in conveying ideas that cross cultures and geographic locations. So I could show the same piece in Tokyo, New York, and Sao Paulo, and it would kind of mean the same thing to those three audiences. And what do you think this does in terms of bringing audiences into the less iconic and more specific areas of art? I think it makes art generally more egalitarian. And for people who are not necessarily, you know, they don't live in cities where there's art or there's no museums, or they frankly just didn't grow up in an environment that fostered going to museums or galleries. Social media has certainly played a huge role in that and bring this work to those types of audiences as well. Art has to work in tandem with business. And you mentioned Warhol before. He said famously that good business is the best art. I know that you're very much involved with the day-to-day -day running of your businesses. Do you agree with that statement that good business is the best art? How do you see business and art working together? I think that the successful operation of a studio in every aspect of business allows me to achieve some of these massive large-scale endeavors that wouldn't otherwise be possible. Some of the works that I create on an addition scale go to fund projects that otherwise wouldn't have any potential funding capability. And I don't know if I would describe it the same way that Warhol does, but I think the sentiment is similar. I know that you've said that your various business arms of the broader Daniel Arsham enterprise are pretty much evenly split. I believe you've said that in the past, that Snarkitecture, the art studio, I believe the collaborations, they all kind of work on a fairly equal basis. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I try to move around the studio and obviously we're in COVID days now, so Snarkitecture is working remotely, but typically I would be walking around and looking at various projects while attending to some sculptural works or painting or drawing. And I think that having everything in one 
location certainly aids with that, but also the sentiment that, or the feeling that working on the design of a restaurant in Tokyo and the uh, design of uh, an exhibition here in New York don't feel different to me in terms of the way of thinking. I'm able to kind of cross between them and employ the same mental resources. It's interesting that you've worked with so many different retail spaces and, and it seems that one technique you do is you, you reinvent them as something a lot closer to the immersive art environment that you might be more familiar with from a museum or a gallery. And now, you know, as you mentioned, the pandemic has clearly been a stumbling block for these kinds of immersive environments. They pretty much have made them impossible for people to engage with. So what do you think is the future of these kinds of environments post-pandemic? I actually think there's going to be a massive return to shared experience because there's, you know, it's been taken away from us. And at the same time, I think the pandemic has accelerated our use and dexterity with digital means of communicating ideas. In some ways, it almost like pushed us 10 years ahead of where we might have otherwise have been in AR, in the use of other sort of digital content to communicate and reaching audiences. So I think these two will go hand in hand, but I still believe that seeing art in person, experiencing something physical, the same is true of architecture, impossible to convey through other means. Historically, art galleries have tried to make themselves as distinct experiences as possible from your traditional kind of retail environment that you'd see for a fashion company or a jewelry company. But the fashion companies have been, over the past couple of years, really edging their designs closer to something that you'd see in an art gallery. And there's been a lot of the incorporation of art in luxury retail spaces. Now that both of these industries have been accelerated by the pandemic, do you see the traditional art gallery and retail spaces coming closer together? Do you see them kind of differentiating themselves further? Or how do you think these things are going to relate in the new hybrid post-pandemic reality that we're going to eventually emerge into? Takashi Murakami did an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. I think it was, it's got to be more than 10 years ago now, that included some of the projects that he had done with Marc Jacobs at Louis Vuitton. And he was sort of mixing these things together and not placing a painting above like literally like a handbag design that he had done and further confused it by having these Canal Street fake LV bags outside of the exhibition, sort of bringing this whole universe of contemporary life and culture into his art universe. And I'll occasionally think back to that exhibition and how successful that was in integrating all of those ideas into one experience. It's interesting to think back at how shocking that was. It was seen as being heretical for Murakami. It's like the critics wanted to cast the moneylenders out of the temple, basically. And then you fast forward to today, and it's become this entirely different environment. And I think one of the best known collaborations you've done is your work with Kith, the ultra cool sneaker emporium. And right now there's something incredibly fascinating happening with sneakers, where they seem to be blurring into something closer 
to collectible art objects. And for one thing, there are the artist collaborations, which you've done before, as we've mentioned with Adidas and Nike. And also the resale market for sneakers has exploded to the point where Sotheby's and Christie's are holding these sneaker auctions with individual pairs of shoes selling for almost half a million dollars. And this just seems to be a little bit of a touchstone to the phenomenon of this broader market that's developing. So can you explain what's going on here with sneakers? How are they sneaking into the status of art objects? For me, I think it's less about the monetary value of them. These are things that I always kind of surrounded myself directly with. And I think part of why they're being presented in the way that they are now is just that there's heavy demand for them and that those auction houses see an opportunity in that. Whether or not people think of them directly as art objects, I think is somewhat debatable. I think that there's a lot of people that will kind of hold them, never wear them, keep them as these precious things, but I try to use them for what they were they were designed for. On your feet? Yes. Do you enjoy being in the context of the sneakers, of streetwear, of the toy figurine phenomenon, more or less than you enjoy being in the context of the tradition of museum art and gallery art? Where do you like to be on that continuum? You know what it is, is that in some ways I never really felt accepted necessarily by the art world. I can remember I did an exhibition at PS1, which was Greater New York in 2005, and I never truly felt like the curators or anyone there really accepted my work as being part of this larger art universe. And that has kind of remained. And instead of trying to fit into that and be a part of it, I feel like I sort of just push the boundaries of what that could encompass. And coincidentally, or just because the zeitgeist was there, all of these things that interested me, music, architecture, design, sneakers, fashion, all of these things now feel part of the art world. And the edges of it are much more blurry than they felt to me when I was first starting out. I think that that's probably the best place to be right now, because the art world has kind of become, in its very traditional sense, in its very traditional construction, pretty much airless. You know, a lot of the development and the real innovation, it seems, is happening on the periphery where there are people coming from other disciplines, other arenas, and merging and marrying with the art context and with artists going out of that kind of art bubble into these other arenas. And speaking of arenas, you're now doing that in a really compelling way with the Cleveland Cavaliers, the basketball team in your birthplace that you are now going to be the creative director for. What does it mean for an artist to be the creative director of a basketball team? Well, it's never happened before. I think the teams and the NBA league never really thought about the need for that. Part of this came about through Dan Gilbert, who's the chairman of the Cavs, was a collector of my work and had commissioned a significant work when the renovation of the arena in Cleveland was completed. And the response to that was interesting. And we just started talking about potential for further involvement with the team. And, you know, I'm certainly longtime Cavs fan from Cleveland. And I had a lot of ideas about what we could do with really bringing what I feel is a kind of incredible city 
out into the world. And so one of the big goals there is to really expand on the Cavs brand, bring it outside of Cleveland, and also reach an audience that could come to know us not necessarily through basketball, but through the other things that make Cleveland an amazing city. And so my big project there is to really also shed light on some of the artistic practice that's happening in Cleveland, some of the things happening in fashion and in food there. It's a really fun project to be involved in. You know, a lot to do there. What other kinds of art expressions can a basketball team have? Do you have any concrete directions that you want to be going in? I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how, in many ways, the team can represent the city. And I think when people think about Cleveland, there's not a lot there that people can tie to. If you've never been to Cleveland, you don't know what it feels like. For you, it's just this kind of Midwest city that had a huge, very long winning drought in sports. We obviously won the championship in 2016 and sort of broke out of that. And I think it's a city that, at least in in terms of basketball, is known for the fight and the effort and the perseverance that went into holding out for all those years before the championship. So my goal would be to build the brand where it can expand to other places, even outside the U.S., and the graphic language of it can mean something. I mean, if we look at some of the more famous teams internationally, if you think about, you could walk around Tokyo and see some kids walking around with Lakers jerseys on, and they don't know anything about what's going on in the league right now. They may not even watch basketball. (laughs) It's more about what that represents to them. And I think that's a really interesting area to touch. You did an interview with my colleague, Tim Schneider, in which you said some pretty ambitious things about your plans for the team. And you said, quote, if Warhol was around today, he'd be the creative director of the Knicks. And you've also framed your work with the Cavs as a kind of an evolutionary step forward in art history. What do you mean by that? I think that certainly since Warhol, the convergence of art and everyday life and American culture, at least for us, there was a kind of inevitability to that. And What I meant by that is Warhol was certainly interested in the kind of spectacle of sports. He's famously and was super interested in like wrestling and thinking about how these sort of everyday, more pedestrian interests of a wider population can be real art experiences. And if we think about sports and basketball as an art, What these guys do every day on the court is impossible for 99.9% of the population to actually do, which is similar to what artists do. Do you think that other sports teams are going to start to follow suit and hire artists to run their visual identity? I mean, it remains to be seen, but I wouldn't be surprised, sure. Obviously, this is a very uncertain time with the pandemic and everything else throwing the world into chaos, but you've managed to stay remarkably busy. You know, you've designed face masks, you've launched a kind of variety show on Instagram called Art for Life, and you've helped fund a grant organization for black creatives. Amid all of this, for the first time in decades, you've also made a really full-hearted return to making paintings. How did that happen? Along with everyone last March, going into quarantine and thinking about what I could physically make there, 
I was in my house, in my office, which was never meant to be an actual working studio in that way. So I brought back some paper. Early on, I was making drawings of sculptures to be produced. And when it started to seem like it was going to be a much longer thing, brought some paint and canvas back and began painting. And, you know, in school, I actually studied painting at Cooper. Many of the first exhibitions that I made were primarily painting exhibitions. Most of the people that probably know my work today have discovered it over the last 10 years in which I haven't shown any paintings publicly. So this has been a really interesting opportunity to go back to painting in that way, to have the time to do it. I'm showing all of the paintings that were made over the last year in this new exhibition with Emmanuel. And can you describe the content of these paintings? So most of them are these sort of sublime landscapes, some existing in the mountains or in a desert or in caverns. And they're referencing sort of two eras of historical painting, looking a lot at German romantic painters like Caspar David Friedrich, who often depicted these sublime landscapes with figures in the foreground. We're looking at their backs often in silhouette, looking into this vast natural landscape, as well as this Italian painting tradition of Capriccio, in which disparate sculptural works or architectural landmarks from separate geographic locations are brought together into one image. So you might have something from Italy and something from France brought together to appear as if they were in the same location, these sort of architectural fantasies, if you will. And so my versions include many of the sculptural works that I've created, including works from Greek and Roman antiquity all the way up through French neoclassical sculpture, as well as the inclusion of some of the Pokemon characters in there. And it's almost as if like the sculptural work, we've traveled to some potential future in which these objects are preserved, either through the intention by placing them in a cavern, or that these are the last sort of remains of a previous civilization. I mean, since this is your epic construct, the framework for your work, how do you see that future point in time? Do you see it as a kind of a ruin and, and destruction, the embers of a dead civilization, do you toggle back and forth or do you have a feeling of what perspective and who is looking at these objects in this future kind of fantasy? I oscillate between different <laughs> potentials, but humans have always predicted the end of civilization and the end of civilization has actually occurred many, many times. The Egyptian civilization as it was that no longer exists in that way. Obviously, the Roman Empire doesn't exist in the way that it was. And certainly the current construct, the sort of global construct that exists now will be different in a 100 years or a thousand years from now. We can't say what that is, but we can say for sure that everything that exists today at some point will be in ruin or won't exist anymore. And I think that idea of a kind of inevitability feels in some ways, not negative, it's factual and potentially productive in thinking. You're ahead of the game by already stripping the color from your works, because we know that <laughs> the Greco-Roman sculptures that we've inherited from antiquity were originally these polychrome, richly painted kinds of sculptures. The work that you're doing now, how do you see its reception in this future moment in time? You know, I've always sort of felt that an artist shouldn't 
necessarily make work based on how the future may view it. It's really about the present and it's both a mirror for us as present people to look at and understand our own time, but also a record of this moment and looking at it 50 years or 100 years from now, I think it will feel very much of this moment. This year has been a terrible year. And you mentioned how obviously your, your travel has been very sharply curtailed. You used to do shows in China frequently, all over the world. What are your hopes and expectations for the year ahead? Yeah, I think that in some ways, the amount of travel that I was doing and so, so many of my friends were doing was kind of an untenable situation. You know, I'd be traveling to Asia for three days, which is not something I can imagine doing in the future. I think that, you know, with the acceleration also of technology, it's allowed certain things to be easier. And we've all figured out that we don't actually need to be physically in all of these places in order to execute ideas there or, or collaborate. So I think that being more selective about that, there have been some silver linings, obviously, to being here, getting back into the painting. I have two young sons, so I've been around, obviously, the entire year and gotten to experience this moment with them, which I think will, at some point when I go back to traveling, this moment will certainly mark their whole childhood experience and their lives experiencing what we shared together over the past year. I mean, it's really a beautiful silver lining and a gift that we've been able to be closer to our loved ones. And I hope that that persists. I mean, do you think that that's possible or is it just going to snap back to where it was before? I think for certain people, inevitably, it will go back. But I certainly don't feel the need if we think about how many art fairs there were and how many different exhibitions we were expected to travel to. It's just not something that I'm willing to do anymore, nor do I think there's a need for it. So being more selective about that travel and the projects that we engage in, I think, will make those individual moments more meaningful. I think that's a very optimistic note to end on. So thanks very much for coming on the show, Daniel. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.